millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Attitudes to refugees and asylum seekers will be discussing the findings of a new poll for Virgin Media Television shortly here in studio. A major drugs bust after a raid at a cocaine mixing factory linked to the Kinnahans is the net closing in on one of the world's biggest drug cartels. And later, Nicola Sturgeon resigns, stating the time is right for me to go. Since my very first moments in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. As always, your voice matters. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Almost two-thirds of people have said they don't agree that Ireland should continue to take in an unlimited number of people fleeing the war in Ukraine. That's according to a new State of the Nation Red Sea poll for Virgin Media Television. Our economics correspondent, Paul Colgan, has been looking at the main findings. These results appear to show two things, that Irish people remain largely sympathetic to the plight of Ukrainians fleeing war, but have deep reservations about Ireland's capacity to incorporate refugees and immigrants. Around half said they feel more positive towards Ukrainian people than those coming from other countries seeking asylum. But almost two thirds said that Ireland should not take in an unlimited amount. And views on Ireland's ability to accommodate refugees seem to reflect deep concerns. Over 80% disagreed with the suggestion that Ireland has the services to cater for the numbers coming here, while over 40% believe they or their families have poorer access to services because of the number of refugees and asylum seekers arriving. It's so difficult, but the capping of numbers is not within our control. Um, it's an EU directive. We just need to step up once again as humans to other humans that are in a crisis, which Ukrainians are still in crisis. They're still, you know, um, fleeing from their homes. Half would support a migrant accommodation centre in their area, while over a third would not. And when asked if they agreed that protests outside migrant centres were not justified, a majority said they weren't. But again, over 30% disagreed with this statement, indicating some support for protests. We have to recognise that uh, people are entitled to disagree with government decisions. They have a right to protest, they have a right to, to disagree. I think it's important that uh, we don't conflate le legitimate disagreement with government protest over some of the very, uh, some of the very nasty, some of the very hate-filled rhetoric and hate-filled actions that have taken place as well. Finally, on the separate issue of Ireland's role in the Ukrainian conflict itself, half of respondents 
do not support the idea of sending weapons to Kyiv, while over a third agree that Ireland should help arm Ukraine. Paul Colgan there with that uh, a debrief on the latest findings from our Red Sea poll. Well, my panel in studio is criminologist and community activist Trina O'Connor, Fianna Fáil TD, John McGuinness, Labour Senator Annie Hoey, Lismore resident Brian Buckley, and via Skype tonight, we're joined by Fine Gael councillor Yemi Adenuga. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, John McGuinness, to come to you first on this, um, are you surprised by the findings of, of that poll, um, specifically questions around people being more positive towards uh, the symp sympathetic towards the plight of Ukrainians fleeing war, but deep reservations about Ireland's capacity to incorporate refugees and immigrants into this country? Uh, I'm not surprised by it. Um, I would interpret what I hear in line with that uh, poll, with that Red Sea uh, poll. Uh, so in the community I representing Kilkenny, for example, uh, we've been noted for assisting with refugees down since you know, the year 2000, when more and more started to come in. Um, and we did a lot of work in that area. The Ukrainians, people are very sympathetic. They're willing to support and help. Uh, but the establishing centres like these, particularly not just for the Ukrainians, but, but for uh, those that are coming in from other countries, we have 130 men being located uh, to Kilkenny. There has been no consultation, no, uh, no one putting in place the services that they will need. Uh, the county council, for example, who is very good with the Ukrainian uh, programme, has not been asked about it. So the government has fallen short in terms of explaining to people exactly what's going on here, showing the difference between those from Ukraine and those that are travelling for uh, protection of one kind or another. Uh, and they, they haven't, uh, I think, answered the question in relation to the services that should be available that are not available. OK, so... Are you saying that there are services available to Ukrainian refugees that simply aren't available um, to others who are seeking international protection? No, Is that what you're saying? No. Or do you take issue with providing services to people seeking no, protection? No, I, I, I actually want countries? to see the services provided. But I'm mm -hmm. saying that they're, they're, the, the government have not worked with the local authorities and the other agencies and local communities to ensure that these services are in place and that the programme, whether it's a refugee programme or the Ukrainian situation, are supported. And that's what's causing an awful lot of the division out there in communities, an awful lot of the, the anxiety that, peop that people share, because they see in their own lives the fact that, you know, that they, they can't get doctor's appointments, uh, the social welfare issues, they have all sorts of issues. Uh, and yet, um, the, 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 those that are coming in will add to that. So they're not saying there no, issues? there needs to be... I'm just, I'm just wondering specifically on this, because you, you've publicly voiced your criticism over a lack of consultation um, about plans to house asylum seekers in a Kilkenny City hotel. Um, what was your issue with the people specifically being housed there? Because you mentioned the age range of the... men coming in, um, what their needs may be and what countries they may be coming from. Yeah, and, and locally, we don't know. That's the issue. So you have 130 but isn't that males. Always, always the way when people are no, are well, coming into a country. Always, into a country and I, I think it should always be the way that they go when, through the, the processes. Yeah, that when they're coming to a location, that those that are supporting them locally, agencies of the state, and some some are volunteers, uh, and indeed the professional help that they need needs to be put in place, and that's not happening. 
and the Ukrainians that are arriving here are not being supported to the extent that they should either. And government policy has not been explained and it's quite, um, you know, it, it, it isn't working in, in terms of the numbers. And I would think that they would get a far more positive response uh, if there was to be consultation and if they were to work with all of us that are working with the groups that are coming in. But it's causing a huge amount of conflict and I, I, I lay the blame at the right. government department for this. OK, Annie, to bring you in on this, um, what, what do you think of what John has to say about where this division is coming from, where this sense of distrust is coming from? Well, first of all, he, he's in a government party, so do you know what I mean? Like, you're part of the... the the, the governing trio. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It just it, it sounds as though that it's an entirely separate entity to to, to the grouping. I I mean, look, I I have a, a very simple belief that if, if a human being comes and asks for help, that we should do our utmost to help them, and that's my my baseline for for any part of my politics and where I come from in politics. And mm. and, and I think that that's a really important piece of this. That there are people coming from. What, wherever, which countries? And I'm, I'm not entirely sure of this, like, well, we'll accept Ukrainians, but we need to know a running list of every single other country so we can vet them or we can decide, well, you come from this country, therefore you're worthy of our help. I'm, I'm uneasy with that. I have to be really honest with you. I'm very uneasy with this listing out of certain countries are more deserving of help than others. If do you see it as a hierarchy, Annie? Absolutely. And, and do I, you think there's a race bias there? I think so, yeah. And, but we Would only you... have to look at how we have over our history treated people. You know, we've, we've had a direct provision where people mostly of colour have been kind of pushed away and they've, they've been in these centres, which, you know, Amnesty International have called, you know, human rights abuses. Um, you know, we've, we've been pushing this away for quite some time where we put people who look different over there and we don't need to worry about it. And now suddenly it's coming much more into our communities than it ever has been before. But lots of us have been working out in direct provision centres for years, talking about the, the inhumane conditions people are in. We have a situation now where people who are coming from one country are getting one kind of social welfare allowance and we have people who are coming from another country who are getting 38 euro a week in order to be able to live. Like that's, you, you, how can you possibly live on that kind of money? And when you think about where people have come from, mm. and if someone tells me that they are traumatised, that they have come through something difficult, I believe them because I'm looking at another human being but, who is asking for help. Yeah, and Annie, you say that, but certainly this poll would suggest that people do have reservations and people are concerned about services being stretched, about our ability to <clears throat> accommodate refugees. Whose fault do you think that is? And... I guess what I'm asking, and I will ask it of John as well, uh, being in a government party, you know, what sort of needs to be done now? Yeah, well, my, my understanding of that poll, you know, is, is that they don't believe the government, you know, that we don't have the capacity to do it. And I, I don't believe that we don't have the capacity. Can I just say that? And I'll be very clear on that. We have 160,000 vacant homes. When we want to, we can help people. We dug deep during COVID and we did miraculous things in order to be able to help people. And I really believe when we have people in need, we can dig deep and do miraculous things. And I understand, and like, that's a pretty damning indictment of government, of people like, we don't believe you have the capacity to help these people. Like, government need to really look at themselves and say, how are people looking at us, governing, running this country and saying that they don't trust us to look after people, they don't trust us to put the services in place, they don't trust us that we will be able to provide for both people living in Ireland and people coming to Ireland. Okay. Government need to look at themselves and answer how they've ended up in that situation. OK, well, let's bring a Fine Gael councillor in on this, um, Yemi Adenuga. Um, Yemi, I suppose first off to come to you, um, does this public attitude surprise you in the slightest from your own experience, 23 years in Ireland? Uh, have you seen a change in the welcome uh, afforded to people? And 
If so, which is being reflected, I guess, in this poll, where do you think that's coming from? Uh, thank you very much. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm surprised because this is not an isolated situation. This is something that I've spoken about a number of times and has been building over years, over time. It's how we've been able to address situations in Ireland with migrants, the policies that we have in place. We spend a lot of money on strategies and on policies that are fantastic. When it comes to implementation, um, it's still something that we're grappling with. There's something I have to mention here. I think we have to recognize that this experience is new for Ireland. Not that the issue of immigration is new for Ireland, but having such large numbers of people coming in all at the same time is a new experience for Ireland. So it means that I, not one person has the answer. We all have a responsibility mm. to work together here. But on when I first came to Ireland... Mm. Sorry, Yemi, you so, were saying, tell, tell us about yes, that when, when you first I, when came I, here. When I first came to Ireland 23 years ago, I remember that there was a program on RTE at the time which called for people from the new Irish community who wanted to get to meet um, an Irish family and get to know more about Ireland to connect with uh, a, a program that was happening at the time. And I remember I must have listened to this about 12 different times before I finally picked up the phone to call. And that one singular call made the difference in how I became better integrated into the Irish community. And it showed me the supports that were available. Now, we don't have those kinds of programs existing anymore. When people arrive, we don't have the programs that, first of all, create awareness for the indigenous Irish people to know how to help support the Ukrainians better. Number two, to help the Ukrainians settle in better while they're here. So we have a duty of care to create such awareness programs. The media has a big role to play in also doing that. The way the media spins head headlines sure. is quite important. Yemi, I just want, I, want to ask, I, I want to ask you, um, while you're saying the media has a role, you are a member of a party, Fine Gael, that has been in power for how many years now? And you talk about 23 years ago that the system wasn't right and integration you know, wasn't in place and people weren't having the conversation and there are strategies there, but there's been no action. Nothing has been done politically on it as, as far as you're concerned, it seems to me. Um, I think we've been having conversations. That's the one thing that I have to say has worked effectively. But we're at the phase where we need to move away from conversations and now move to action. I think we need to take learnings from countries like the UK, from America, from even Canada, countries that have tried issues of integration and they have worked and learn what they've, made, they've done wrong and learn what they've done right and take these learnings then to build a model that works for okay. us in Ireland All right. and create one that can help people settle in better. So as I said earlier on, we all have a role to play. Okay, all right. Um, Yemi, thank you for that. Brian, to bring you in on this, um, remind us again, you were among those uh, in Lismore in County Waterford uh, protesting the housing of asylum seekers in a hotel in the town. Yeah. Um, just. Tell us about that, because I think 69 asylum seekers arrived into the town just yeah. at the start of February. Yeah. How that's all going now and how that integration is and whether there's been much reaction. Certainly there were protests at the start of the year, but much reaction now to their arrival. Very welcoming. Uh, that was never going to be under question. 
Um, I think we, we made a point of that from the very start, not to bring the people into it. We were actually just highlighting the issue of the government's decision to give a week's notice to, to the community of Lismore, as, as John alluded to. It's a very similar argument. Um, I believe I believe it's, it's, a, it's a national crisis at the moment, what's going on. Um, I believe that they're not listening to the communities. There's no consultation. I mean, a week's notice. We're getting roughly about 10% of our population. We've got no extra resources. Um, I can give but, you... Yeah, so you're saying now, but uh, very welcoming, we always would be, but... Of course you know, we would. Were, but there was 300 of you <coughs> protesting. Protesting against the government's decision, though, not as... Uh, not we're protesting. those who've arrived. No, no, of course not. I've met some of these people. Um, you know, we, we welcome people from all over the world into, into our community, all throughout our yeah. existence. That was never going to be an issue. OK, so tell us about then the main issues that um, residents would have had with the arrival of, of 69 but asylum seekers into the Gardaí, uh, doctors, teachers, um, you know, uh, just to make a, a kind of a personal story, an 82-year-old woman rang um, uh, an ambulance on Monday of this week at 2 o'clock. The ambulance didn't arrive until 9 o'clock that evening. Mm. Uh, we got word last night that for three nights this week, uh, we're not going to have any ambulance cover for West Waterford. And why is this? <clears throat> uh, rostering issues. Lack of sorry. Rostering issues. Yeah, so la is that anything to do with the asylum seekers? Well, if you're going to put 10% of our population into our town overnight, at least give us the resources to well, look after our people. Well, if it's rostering issues, is it fair to say that it's linked with the asylum seekers who are in but the But it's linked with the government to put 10% of our population into a community overnight. It's the same as putting 15,000 people okay, into Okay, so this is more a government and a resource issue. Oh, 100%. More towns it's, like got, it's got nothing There's, to do no, with No, I just people. want to clarify, because when you are talking about ambulances not turning up and elderly people being impacted by that, I think it's kind of important to say that that's a, down to a resourcing issue and a rostering issue, But, but that's, going to, but that's going to get worse if you're going to bring in 10% of a population overnight. That's going to get worse. We need more Gardaí, we need more doctors, we need more nurses. You, you, they, they can't, just can't sustain. Uh, Trina, what Brian is saying, certainly, look, it would be reflected in that poll, what people are saying about, you know, more than 80% um, question our ability to accommodate refugees and that squeeze on services in areas. As someone who's working in the heart of communities where we have seen many protests, do, do you recognise that? Do you see it? And do you see where people are coming from? Yeah, I think people have very valid concerns, but refugees and people in international protection and people from Ukraine don't have any influence on this at all, whether they come to small communities or not. In fact, a lot of communities like the Northside Community Forum and Ballyfair and Cherry Orchard for All have come together to create a grassroots movement where they're doing that integration piece that we were speaking about earlier to support, support people, to show them how to integrate, to show them what services they need. So I just, I just wonder, you know, where is the Cade made of Alchagon for people? Mm -hmm. So I understand when you say it was very welcoming. I really want people to think about the people that were in them buildings when people were protesting outside. The English may not be their first language. They may not understand what's going on out there. And then people are frightened because of what they've come so, from. I mean, do you think, I mean, uh, Brian, and, and it's not Brian alone, like there were 300 people in Lismore yeah. and those protests, again, yeah. are taking place um, right around the country. And I think you, you wanted to make the point that, as well, your protest was uh, not linked to any movement or, or you know, no, far right or an extreme. No, no. No, no. But a question, a it, question. Literally, just services. at the government's decision for this, like it's, it's not against the people. Well, 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 the place to protest, the place to protest is the doll. That's where you protest. 
you don't go to the place where people that are seeking protection, that you cause them more fear. Not you personally, Brian. Oh, no, I understand. But for the people who are protesting outside of these centres, I would appeal to them to think about the human beings that are inside them buildings that are frightened, that may have had situations with police forces in their own countries, and they do not know what they're going to face, and they are frightened. And as Irish people, I'm ashamed when I see these protests. Um, There's children. Annie, yeah, we have to be honest, there are that. children in these buildings. We, we, we all read the no, testimony. I must clarify, there was nobody in this hotel. On, yeah, we, this protest happened on the Sunday, and there was no people that uh, didn't arrive until the Thursday, and there was no... There was going to be no protest to these people. We made that very clear. And we keep, we, we keep on having to make this clear. But the problem is we can't even have a debate on immigration in this country. Like, as John, we were talking, we said, everything is shut down straight away. We need to have a proper debate on immigration. Uh, yeah, I, John, I, I, I agree with Brian. I agree with Brian because, you know, when you raise it, you get all sides coming at you. And really what is being said uh, by Brian and others is that there is a capacity issue. And right now... People that have lived here all their lives are having an issue with schools, they're having an issue with their, their medical appointments, their doctors and so on. Are there issues, though, with schools? I think it's no, no, there is, no, just, just, and it just has been me, acknowledged me, just on Let that. me finish the point. Yeah. So you it means that when, when we allow, when we invite people through international agreements to come into our country, we have an obligation to make sure that they're looked after too. And we're falling short on that. And we're not giving the resources to the volunteers that are locally I I interacting with whatever group it may be, from Ukraine or refugees, and we're, we're not giving them resources to make it work for them. And that's the big issue. So you're, would you then say that we need to uh, cap the numbers coming in because we're not I, I, providing I think, I, I services for them? I suggested that we might stall... The, the process, in order to get control on what we have at present, to make sure that they're all housed, to make sure that they're all catered for, to make sure that the processes are in place to assist them and help them, and to have a constructive debate But we have international obligations it. on that, from a very practical and point I'm, of view. I'm honouring, I'm honouring those international obligations, and I want to ensure that those that come here are looked after. I find it very offensive when I look out at people. I'm trying to help them, I'm there with them, and there is nothing coming from central government to ensure that the mechanism and structures are in place Annie, to, to honour our international agreements. Annie, um, you know, I can see um, from your body language that, you know, that, that this conversation frustrates you. Um, you mentioned before that the resources actually are there. Um, where, where are they? And, well, look, and, have... and in what way are they being held up, do you think, if well, we they're have, there? You know, we... Over in the last week, had our government party championing our GDP and our record tax takes. We have a rainy day fund that's been put away. Like, there's a rainy day now, and it's not just a rainy day for people coming into the country. Like, there are people who are here who need doctors and nurses and all of these things. And I'd be tearing my hair out in the health committee. I used to be tearing my hair out outside Leinster House, calling for more investment in nurses, more investment in doctors, more investment in teachers. We're only discussing it today in the Shannon. Like, there was a rainy day fund there. I don't know if this isn't a rainy day it's, where it's we raining. have... It's, it's very much slashing. so raining now. It's slashing. Yeah, it is. It's slashing rain and money so, is not going to solve this. It's not about money. It's about looking at how we work within our communities. And we could actually use this as an opportunity to bring us back to what we used to be as a welcoming community. Communities working together, integrating but we, together. But, to, but, we, we, are we, welcome, but we, we are a welcoming yeah, community. Yeah, I know, I know, you know but have, people, if you just, you know, people who come into this country who want to work, for example, who have skills that we need mm -hmm. in this country, for example, 
speeding that process up. So you're talking about the pro the, the process, um, not the people here. No, not but the people. But to put that question there, because you say it's not a money issue, but clearly look, there is a resourcing issue. If we are resorting to tents in the middle of winter or hotel rooms not fit to house families and offering very... Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Temporary respite to people that we are, are we providing the service that is fit for those um, coming here? No, but we're also not providing the service for the people who live here who are homeless as it is. So there is a crisis in homelessness in this country already. So, so there's a big issue there. That's where this is. You've got people competing for very limited resources. And this is where the vacuum of information then is causing people to compete against each other. And it's not about the people. It's about the process. It's about the structure. And I, I think that what grassroots communities are doing are trying to kind of plug the gap there a little bit by offering that welcome. Right. Well, they, they need to be empowered they and they do, need to yeah. be funded. They so do, yeah. we're all saying the same thing. And if you look at those that are providing a service and that are providing accommodation, they haven't been paid for four months. Yeah. Haven't been paid for four months. So you asked them to I mean, provide I, a service yeah. and that's meals I look, and just, accommodation. I'm very conscious that you're here as the government TD, John. Yeah, and trying to influence policy. Highlighting the failings and trying to influence policy. So what do you think is going on at the heart of all of this? We keep hearing uh, about Roderick O'Gorman coming in saying, please, you know, help me, asking different departments to come on board to help with this process and, you know, maybe some turning uh, the other cheek to that I idea. think that we have a great, um, great community throughout the country that are more than willing uh, to come forward and help, but we haven't harnessed their direction and their energy. We haven't empowered them to do it. And we've left them without any narrative, without any explanation as to what's going on. And as a result of that, in that vacuum, you get people then that will protest because they don't understand what exactly is going on. And then added to that then, if you have the service <coughs> providers not being paid, that's just raising a further question. So tonight in the Dáil, we had a parliamentary party meeting. Uh, I was there with the, the Taoiseach and others. Uh, and we raised this very issue. And it's hard to debate it. You know, because you, you get people coming at you from all sides. But in the main, all people want to do is provide those that are coming in with the proper supports that are necessary. And for those that live in these communities, to keep them informed, keep them engaged. 
And then we can do our bit for international obligations. Annie, do you believe it is, um, I suppose, as, as simple as that consultation, keeping people informed with all of this, and then there would, would. Be a, there would be a, a welcome all round? No, I don't think so. I think we've unleashed a lid on something and it's going to take really, I think, really strong leadership from government on this. Um, when we're talking about what happened in the Dáil this evening, like there was a, a, a proposal to extend the eviction ban and that was voted down by government parties. So not only are we being let down on our international reputation in terms of supporting people, when we are putting proposals on the table that would support people who are living here and are facing eviction, Government aren't supporting that either. So it's it's tough to, to, to listen to, you know, oh, we just need to tell people what's happening. We just have some consultation. Like, what does consultation mean? You do we get everyone to have... If I could spin it, if I could spin it. Do you know, like, do we get everyone to fill out a survey and decide who gets to come into their community? I agree there's been a lack of information, but this consultation is being, being used... I believe you're as trivializing a way. the issue. I don't. Uh, I that's, don't. That's don't, very, that's very don't. regrettable. I don't think you should ever accuse me of trivializing this issue. We are the very people in our communities who are integrating these people into our communities, so we should be consulted on it. We are the ones that have to put in this framework for these people, not the government, because the government is providing no framework for this. So we have people down in Lismore who are going out of their way to make these people feel welcome. You, you asked Claire why there was why it was where it is. There are so many coming in. I think the department is overwhelmed. So you need to beef up the department right. as well, well. A lot could be said about the direct provision system and the process um, and whether it is fair and whether it is fast. That is probably for another day because there's lots more to discuss on that. Uh, but my thanks to Brian and to Yemi who joined us on Skype. The rest of the panel will be staying on with me. After the break, Garthi bust a cocaine mixing factory linked to the Kinnahans. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Garthi have said the discovery of almost €3 million euro worth of cocaine and a suspected drug mixing factory is a major blow to the criminal underworld. Eight arrests were made as part of the operation on the outskirts of Dublin. Uh, two uh, people have since been released without charge. And a little earlier, I spoke to crime editor of the Irish Sun um, and I began by asking Stephen Breen about the cocaine mixing factory. Well, Clara, this was a... Uh, the latest phase of the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau's efforts to dismantle and disrupt the ongoing criminal activities of the Kinnahan Crime Network, but also those gangs uh, across Dublin and indeed across Ireland who work closely with the Kinnahan Crime Group. You have gangs across the whole country who uh, work very closely with the Kinnahans in bringing drugs into Ireland and also distributing those drugs to towns and cities across the whole country. But in this investigation under Operation Tara, you first of all have two people stopped in cars in Blanchestown and also in Ballyfermot, a man and a woman. They're arrested and guardian recovered drugs. Secondly, uh, in the main focus of the investigation, you have uh, the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau and the Special Crime Task Force swooping on a premises in South Dublin, a business premises and inside. The business premise, they recover a suspected cocaine mixing factory. And also in the factory, they recover 78,000 uh, euro in cash. They also recover drug paraphernalia, uh, mixing agents and uh, 2.8 million euros worth of cocaine. And is this being seen, Stephen, as a, as a major blow to the drug uh, distribution network in Ireland, to, to what the Kinahan um, crime group are running? Is, is that how it's being viewed? 
Yeah, well, it's, it's caused massive uh, disruption uh, to their criminal enterprise. Obviously, the main uh, reason for the, the Kenahan gang and their associates existing here is to uh, facilitate drug dealing in Ireland and also to uh, make huge profits. So here we have the guards who are looking at this um, part of their criminal enterprise. They have been looking at this and investigating this network for quite some time. They uh, used surveillance. We're also monitoring key targets who were suspected of working closely with the Kinahan crime group on this occasion. So there's no doubt that it will obviously hit them in uh, the pocket. You know, they're, they're already down 2.8 million worth uh, euro in cash. But it also could maybe help Gardaí when they're examining the business premise, look at the various uh, money laundering possibilities that the gang were perhaps using here and examining bank accounts and other transactions. And, but also taking out people who were providing key logistical support to the criminal network. So without question, it will cause significant disruption to the criminal enterprise. And Stephen, coming to those who are at the top, um, whereabouts do we know is Daniel Kinahan now? We know that there were international efforts and indeed moves made uh, to cut him off from the US. He left Dubai and we know that Christy Kinahan, we understand, is now in Zimbabwe. Uh, do we know where Daniel Kinahan is? Well, it's almost a year uh, since the, the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau and their international partners issued those sanctions against the Kinahan crime cartel. There has been a lot of speculation since then as we approach the anniversary of the $5 million rewards being issued for information. I think that the Garda are still working closely with their international partners that they have had uh, some intelligence in relation to the various key top-tier members of the gang and where they might be at the moment. Um, but when I interviewed uh, a representative from the, the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau recently, the, the position hadn't changed and they still believe that senior members of the gang are in Dubai, in the Middle East. But there is also the suspicion that Christy Kinahan, he's been photographed before in Zimbabwe. He has connections to that country as well. He's currently uh, been, been visiting Zimbabwe uh, at the moment. So, so there are different um, countries uh, who are open to dealing with people from the Kinahan Crime Network, but at the moment, the Guardi are focusing their uh, attentions and their efforts in bringing them to justice by working with their partners in the Middle East. Also a senior uh, figure within the Kinahan Organised Crime Gang in Ireland, uh, there was a High Court ruling against Ross Browning today. Uh, briefly, Stephen, can you tell us how significant that was? Again, Ross Browning is someone who was at the very top tier of the Kinahan Crime Network. Um, he's been associated with the gang for many, many years. And he's someone who comes originally from the north inner city area of Dublin. But uh, when it came to the Kinahan Hutch feud, he uh, made his loyalties to the, the, the Kinahan Crime Network. Um, he was mentioned in court as a key figure of the Kinahan Crime Gang. And indeed, it's not just the the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau who are, are going after these individuals. You also have the Criminal Assets Bureau playing a role in targeting the, the assets. And on this occasion, it's deemed that many of his assets emanated from the proceeds of crime. So a very significant development at the High Court today. And it shows that CAB are also continuing to target senior members of the Kinahan Crime Network. All right, Stephen Breen, Crime Editor with the Irish Sun. Uh, thank you for bringing us up to date on all of that. Thank you. Well, still here in studio with me is Trina O'Connor, John McGuinness and Annie Hoey. Uh, Trina, to come to you on this, we hear about the latest drug seizure from Stephen, um, also that cab rate that was up before the High Court today. Um, but really, I suppose the question is, are Garthi making the, the dent, the inroads they want to make in taking down this Kinahan cartel? And do they have the resources to be able to 
to tackle not just the Kinnahans, but all the up-and-coming up gangs um, that are behind them and, and looking to the likes of the Kinnahans and how they're, as an international gang, that they are breaking so easily through the Irish market. Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant when you see this kind of dismantling of the Kinahan gang happening. I think it's brilliant that the amount of intelligence that they're going to get from this um, today. However, look, we know the garden numbers are down. We know there are resourcing issues there. Um, obviously, if we had more intelligence, we could take people down quicker. But I suppose from a grassroots point of view, it's what's going on on our streets and the up and coming gangs that we're seeing. And where does a void, you will get people climbing that ladder and they can climb that ladder very quickly. And the younger up and coming criminals are, you know, um, they're, they're, they're pretty psychopathic in some of the ways that they behave. So you've got young people who are coming from, you know, intergenerational criminality. A lot of it can be within a small community or within even a family. And when you've got people filling that void there, then you're dealing with very seasoned criminals at a very young age who may be using drugs and are very reckless. So in terms of the guard resourcing, I mean, the guards will tell you they're resourced and all that, but like the figures don't lie. We're at the lowest number that we've been since I think 2017, I think. So we do need more resources, absolutely. Yeah, uh, John, uh, like it's not just Trina saying that and many people saying it. We also had Antoinette Cunningham on this programme um, last night talking about the recruitment crisis uh, within the Gardaí. If they don't have the staff in those special units, uh, like the one that broke up this drug drugs factory, we're in trouble, aren't we? Uh, we are, and efforts have to continue to ensure that we do recruit and that we recruit at the various levels and with the skills that are necessary. Uh, but let's not take from the, uh, the, the bust today. Uh, it was very significant, uh, particularly when you're dealing with a gang that is now worldwide. They can just move very easily, apparently. Uh, but as, um, three million is a hell of a lot of drugs. Mm. And when you look at what the, the devastation being caused at community level uh, by the use of drugs and the availability of drugs, uh, yes, the Gardaí are well focused, I think, within communities. They probably need more resources. Uh, but on an international front, it's good to see that in different jurisdictions, they come together, uh, they put the resources together uh, and they get better results out of it. But there's an awful lot more to be done in relation to the Kinahans and stopping drug traffic in Ireland. Uh, yes, certainly we've had a lot of international help, Annie, when it comes to, you know, stopping the likes of movement of the Kinahans and, and restricting... Um, their assets uh, in various countries, but there's a lot of work to be done on the ground, I guess, to, to break up the cartel still, but also to dampen the rise of other gangs that are clearly coming up. Yeah, and I think when we look at the figures, I think in uh, March 2020, there was 14,750 guards and last November it was 13,907, but that's nearly a drop of nearly 1,000. Uh, guards in, in a quite a short period. So we're in, in dire need of training um, I'm bringing more uh, guard, guardy into the system. It's also the expertise, isn't it? As yeah. well, it's the brain power. It's yeah, those yeah, that have the years of experience. Yeah, um, and to, to work on these special dealing these special with units. you know everything. So you, do you know what I mean you need people coming up the ranks so as to be able to divvy out your resources, train people up into this as well. Do you know there's, you need people coming up the ranks as well to be trained in on this. Um, but I definitely think resourcing is a really big problem. It's it's a tough job, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's not the best paid job in the world. It's, it's a tough job to try and recruit people into. And I can understand why people are reticent to go into it. I think you have to have a, a real grow for your, for your civil duty, I think. But th those in these units, those guards in the units are, I think, fantastic. 
And the, the way they collaborate in other, with other jurisdictions is hugely important. All right. OK, well, there we will leave it. My thanks to Trina. Coming up after the break, what next for Scotland as Nicola Sturgeon calls time as First Minister? Welcome back. Nicola Sturgeon has announced her intention to resign as First Minister of Scotland after eight years in the job, saying the time is now. She said that the decision, while hard to make, came from a place of duty and tough love and not one that was in reaction to short-term political pressures. Well, earlier I spoke to journalist and broadcaster Leslie Riddock and I began by asking her about that shock resignation. Hi, completely. Uh, I think everybody uh, has been completely sidewalled by this. Um, uh, people within the SNP HQ that I was speaking to before her press conference at 11 a.m. said there was no clue that this was coming at all. And of course, with J Jacinda Ardern uh, resigning with no you know, energy left in the tank just a couple of weeks ago, um, Nicola Sturgeon had categorically said she didn't feel like that. Of course, you do have to keep the stiff upper lip going until the moment you actually change your mind. But, you know, there's been no evidence uh, really that this was coming. So it has been a total shock. And, and actually, her, her resignation has dominated the news um, across the London media here in Scotland. There's nothing else anybody's talking about right now. So it's kind of a bit of a backhanded compliment, even from her political opponents, that the day that she chooses to go has been described as historic. Uh, and privately, of course, her political opponents must be expressing relief at her departure, um, Leslie. But to come to, I guess, what it means now for independence in Scotland, like clearly that was her big push. Um, her predecessor, Alex Salmon, says the movement now has no clear strategy. Well, it doesn't for the very good reason that uh, the United Kingdom government keeps denying the straightforward thing, which would be to let the supposedly most powerfully devolved government in the world, that's Scotland, by the way, um, actually conduct a lawful referendum of its own people. And you, you do have to kind of keep reminding yourself that the reason that we're going round the houses, coming up with second best solutions that are fraught with problems, is that the straightforward walk to the washing line has suddenly got a massive great obstacle in it. But then's the breaks. That is the way that uh, the British government works. And it's draining, absolutely so, and frustrating. And I think she kind of took one long look at how, how long that next bit of the process will take. And it won't be, you know, just around the corner and decided it needed somebody else with the energy to do this for two, three, possibly four, five years. Do you think that was part of the reasoning behind her departure, um, that sense of the, the big task ahead and whether she was the right person um, to carry that task? Well, just she's exhausted. And I mean, fair play. I think anybody who lived like me in Scotland, for example, during the whole of COVID, while Boris Johnson was here, there and very rarely on TV, and when he was, was generally pretty ill-informed actually about what was going on, Nicola was there every single waking day, um, absolutely brief to the nines, um, completely in charge of her brief, and a massive reassurance to people that there was somebody that competent and sort of caring and empathetic at the helm. Now, that does take lumps out of you. She's never rested. You know, she moved like all key workers straight from COVID into managing the, the aftermath of that, into cost of living crises, 
into the constant friction that there is really with a Westminster government that is uh, totally at odds with what Scots vote for. So I, I'm astonished in a way that she's managed so long and yet she's made everything kind of look effortless. She is like a political superwoman in some respects because she's carried these kind of um, blows that, that would really have knocked over a lesser person and carried on apparently regardless. But it's obviously taken its toll. Right, so the big question is, uh, who's going to fill her place? Now, that, that is a big question. And in the sense that nobody saw this coming, there's not exactly a set of runners and riders. And I think just out of respect for Nicola Sturgeon, there's nobody really throwing their hat in the ring today. But um, there's Angus Robertson, um, who is uh, 53. He's um, been the constitutional affairs spokesperson. He's seen by uh, he's a lot of gravitas, but perhaps he's seen as part of the old regime a little bit and a little bit sort of centrist and lacking dynamism. Kate Forbes uh, is the young, 32, I think she is, finance secretary. She's been on maternity leave. Uh, she is a member of the Free, Free Church. Um, they, as a church, are opposed to gay marriage, abortion and various human rights. That could be kind of tricky for any politician, but particularly for someone who would be in charge of one of the most progressive socially democratic parties actually in Britain. Um, there's a whole lot of other candidates I could run through. I'll bet you the folk watching this programme will know none of them. And that's the problem. It's been a very star-led administration by Nicola Sturgeon and hardly anyone else has really had room to breathe. I was going to say Nicola Sturgeon is the name that everyone will be familiar with here. Leslie uh, Ruddock, thank you for bringing us up to date. Thank you for joining us tonight and, and, and telling us about that shock departure uh, from over the sea. Right, you are. John McGuinness and Annie Hoey are still here with me. Uh, I'm wondering, is this a new age uh, approach to politics? I'll come in, I'll work hard, and I'll leave when I feel I've done the job as best I can, John. Uh, I think so. She was a very good uh, politician, uh, did a lot for, for uh, Scotland, similar to the uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, who, who resigned. Um, and I think it's, it's sad for politics worldwide to see two very strong uh, politicians like that, particularly women, uh, resign. And I think maybe we have to reflect on why that happened. And I think you'll find that the pressure of social media is in there somewhere. And then there's a, 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 the obvious that there's another life. Politics doesn't have to be forever in your life. Uh, and they've shown that. They made their contribution, eight years. Um, and that's not easy. It's 24-7. It's relentless. Uh, and as I say, the commentary that come in, comes into you in terms of social media can often knock you off balance. Uh, so, yeah, she has another life to lead and I'm sure she'll find something that will be, uh, that, that she will take up. Yeah, it's interesting, um, isn't it though, Annie? Is this uh, something that's disappointing to see or arguably is it something that's progressive? Um, you make your mark and then you get out. You don't hang around until you're forced to depart. Um, she had eight years at the helm. Uh, the point was made that she was Scotland's first minister before either the prime minister or the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, were even MPs. I think it can be both at the same time. We can be disappointed to see, you know, we don't know her full reasons and her, her reasons are her own, of course. And it also could be, you know, incredibly refreshing for, to see a leader to be able to say, actually, now is my time and to own that time. I think that's very powerful, particularly for those two women to say, this is my time, I'm owning my time and I'm taking it and I'm going to do it my way as, as the song goes. And, and as, as, as was said, that's all anyone can talk about right now is 
her leaving and her time. So I think that is refreshing, but I do think you have to reflect on what it is that has caused both of these women to have no more gas in the tank for a job. And do you know what, maybe it is because politics has changed. We've come through a really difficult time. Both of them led um, their respective countries through an extremely difficult period of COVID. Uh, they've come out on the other side with the, the fallout from that, both the backlash from that and the fallout from that, the cost of living crisis. It's an immensely difficult time to be in politics. Because there were such good leaders, you'd wonder what other contribution they might have made, you know, in maybe adding on another five years to their term. Uh, because they did so much in the eight years, for example, with Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and it's always good, I know, to change, but at the same mm. time, you do need right. you, you do need strong leaders and, at And this interesting time. to see where they go from here. Well, that is it from us. My thanks to John and to Annie and all the rest of our panel tonight. The group chat is over on Virgin Media too now. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. <laughs>